All right, I invite you to turn in your Bibles with me to Psalm chapter 38. Psalm 38. This is the third of the so-called penitential psalms. Now that is to say that this is a psalm of confession and sorrow over sin. Now if you were here earlier this year, or perhaps you were here in 2020, you have already studied two of the penitential psalms. Psalm 6, and this year Psalm 32. They both fall into that category. Now, if the Lord tarries, we will study four more of these penitential psalms after this one. One will be in 2025, one will be in the year 2030, one will be in 2032, and one will be in 2034. Again, I will be 51 years old when we study Psalm 143, if the Lord allows me good health and the continued privilege as serving as your senior pastor. Judah, you'll be 22 years old. And Christina, you'll be, wait a minute, um, 38. 38. We're on Psalm 38 this morning. I took her out to dinner yesterday because I knew that joke was coming, so... All right, so if you found Psalm 38, will you stand in honor of the reading of God's word with me this morning? A Psalm of David for the memorial offering. O Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath, for your arrows have sunk into me, and your hand has come down upon me. There is no soundness in my flesh because of your indignation. There is no health in my bones because of my sin. For my iniquities have gone over my head. Like a heavy burden, they are too heavy for me. My wounds stink and fester because of my foolishness. I am utterly bowed down and prostrate. All the day I go about mourning. For my sides are filled with burning. And there is no soundness in my flesh. I am feeble and crushed. I groan because of the tumult of my heart. O Lord, all my longing is before you. My sighing is not hidden from you. My heart throbs. My strength fails me. In the light of my eyes, it also has gone from me. My friends and companions stand aloof from my plague, and my nearest kin stand far off. Those who seek my life lay their snares. Those who seek my hurt speak of ruin and meditate treachery all day long. But I am like a deaf man. I do not hear, like a mute man who does not open his mouth. I have become like a man who does not hear and in whose mouth are no rebukes. But you, O Lord, do I wait. For you do I wait. It is you, O Lord my God, who will answer. For I said, only let them not rejoice over me who boast against me when my foot slips. For I'm ready to fall and my pain is ever before me. I confess my iniquity. I'm sorry for my sin. But my foes are vigorous. They are mighty. And many are those who hate me wrongfully. Those who render me evil for good accuse me because I follow after good. Do not forsake me, O Lord. O my God, be not far from me. Make haste to help me, O Lord, my salvation. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. Thank you for standing in the honor of reading of it. You may be seated. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we pray that you would illuminate our hearts, 
through the Holy Spirit's power, that he would speak, that he would guide, and he would enlighten our eyes to see and to hear this morning. Father, I pray that you would provoke our hearts to holiness. Help us to see and understand uh, doctrines that may be new or different. Help us to uh, grasp concepts that are complicated and complex at times. Lord, we pray that your spirit would help. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You can tell by what we just stood to read, uh, this psalm is a little messy, complicated. In one breath, David acknowledges that he is suffering physically as a result of his disobedience to the Lord. And yet he intermingles his confession of sin with a plea of innocence in the way that he's dealt with his enemies. So we have, I think, a lot of work to do this morning. We have to briefly examine the complexities of things like the relationship between sin and suffering, or between sin and sickness, between discipline and the wrath of God, and considering a life of, that's on a trajectory that follows after good, yet fails to obey God perfectly. Now, if you were here this morning for the Baptist Faith and Message teaching series, you got a little sneak peek of some of what we'll be discussing in a different color today. So just meditate on that as we go through this morning's message. So to help guide us, to keep us on track, in your bulletins this morning, I've come up with 10 questions that are intended to address the messy life and aid the repentant prayers of the sinner. Aiding the desperate prayers of a repentant sinner. So first of all, a question to ask yourself this morning, is the Lord chastening you? Is the Lord chastening you? We're going to deal with the relationship between sin and suffering for sin or sin and sickness in question number three. But even before we get there, the simple question for you today is whether or not the Lord is chastening you or disciplining you. Now notice that David does not ask God to refrain from discipline altogether. David knows that the fatherly discipline of God is a good for him. He understands the value of discipline. Rather, David prays to the Lord that his rebuke would not be in anger and that his discipline would not be in his wrath. So right away, you need to know there is a type of chastening or disciplining that comes from the Lord that is not the same thing as God's wrath. That distinction is a huge concept to latch on to throughout our understanding of this psalm. And here's why. The wrath of God is not something he pours out on Christians. He does not pour out his wrath on believers. God's wrath is toward unrepentant sinners. God's wrath is for unbelievers. Before coming to faith in Christ, Ephesians chapter 2 verses 1 through 3 tells us, we were all dead in our trespasses and sins. And Paul says, by nature, we were, what? Children of wrath. The Gospel of John makes it plain in John 3, verse 36. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Who? The one who does not obey the Son, the unbeliever. But for the Christian, we know 
that Jesus satisfied the wrath of God towards sin on the cross. He is the propitiation for our sins. So if you're here this morning, you got the full definition of that. He satisfies the wrath of God toward sin at Calvary. John, 1 John 4.10 says, In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Jesus Christ satisfied God's just anger towards sin when he died on the cross for sinners. So for a repentant Christian, we have the assurance all of God's chastening, all of God's rebuking is wrath-free. God is never angry at you because the satisfaction of his anger and wrath toward your sin was accomplished when he poured out his wrath in full on Jesus at the cross. So Christians, that should make you thankful. Thankful. He always is disciplining like a father. So you never have to wonder if the Lord's discipline is in wrath or not. If you are in Christ, you know that the chastening is the discipline of a loving father. So Hebrews 12 and verse 6, the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. Nevertheless, the question remains, is the Lord disciplining you even now? And to help you know the answer to that question, follow on question number two. Is the Spirit convicting you? Is the Spirit, is the Holy Spirit convicting you of sin? David says, Lord, your arrows have sunk into me and your hand has come down heavy upon me. Charles Spurgeon, writing about this, says, quote, The Lord knows how to shoot so that his bolts not only strike, but stick. He can make convictions sink into the innermost spirit like arrows driven up into the head. Now, it would seem strange that the Lord should shoot his arrows at his beloved ones, but in truth, he shoots at their sins rather than them. And those who feel his sin-killing shafts in this life shall not be slain with his hot thunderbolts in the next. So, are the arrows of the Lord sinking in? Are you being pierced to the heart and convicted of ways that you need to repent? Now, this could happen in any number of ways for a believer. Perhaps the Lord has brought you low recently and made you reflective. Perhaps the Lord is using his word, as he often does, to convict you as you learn more about what it means to follow Jesus, to obey his commands. Or perhaps the Lord is using another believer to convict you as he or she lovingly confronts you for sin that is apparent in your life. Christians should be the kind of people who welcome a godly rebuke when it is deserved. David says in Psalm 141 and verse 5, Let a righteous man strike me. It is a kindness. Let him rebuke me. It is oil for my head. Let my head not refuse it. Now, Jonathan Lehman, in his excellent book on church discipline, writes that Christians who are indwelt by the Holy Spirit, generally speaking, cannot abide for long in known sin. 
they eventually become so uncomfortable, courtesy of the Holy Spirit, that they eventually do the right thing. And formal church discipline or excommunication is warranted when an individual, on the other hand, seems to happily abide in known sin. There's no evidence the Spirit is making him or her uncomfortable or any sense of discomfort other than perhaps the discomfort of getting caught. Which leads me to my third question today. Is sin crushing you? Is sin crushing you? The picture in verse 4 of Psalm 38 is one where David is drowning in his iniquities. If you ever dove into a deep pool, and the deeper you get, the more the pressure is upon you. He says that his sins and iniquities have become so heavy, so heavy a burden that they are too heavy for him to bear. In verse 8, he says, I'm feeble and crushed. Listen, the crushing load of sin for a believer is one that he or she cannot bear up under. They feel the guilt and they respond to the Spirit's conviction and call to repentance. So if living in known, unrepentant sin is comfortable for you, then I refer you back to Ephesians chapter 2, where in all likelihood, I would suggest you are dead in your trespasses and sins. You are numb, unfeeling, insensitive to the prompting work of the Spirit through His Word or through the godly rebuke of another Christian. Dear friends, sin is always a burden too heavy for you and too heavy for me. Your iniquities are an insurmountable load that will drag you down into the pit of hell. Apart from Jesus taking the burden of your sin on the cross, you will be crushed under the weight of your iniquity. Now, it's at this point where, as promised, we will pause to consider the relationship between sin and suffering or sin and sickness. Because David says in verses 3 through 8 that he is physically ill because of his sin. Now, there are some who believe that this is, even verses 3 through 8, are metaphorical. In other words, uh, sin is a uh, sickness of a sort, like leprosy in the Old Testament, or just kind of comparing it, the festering nature of sin in our lives. And that is all true. The metaphor is true. I'm inclined to believe that it is physical illness he's experiencing. And truth is, there is no way of knowing for sure. The occasion is not concrete in Scripture as to which suffering or sickness he was experiencing. But it seems likely he was experiencing physical bout of illness that he knew was a punishment from the Lord. Whatever the case, we know from other portions of Scripture, other places in the Bible, this is, to throw out a big word, the perspicuity of Scripture, the clarifying nature of Scripture on, on Scripture, that suffering and sickness are not automatically linked. Uh, suffering and sickness, excuse me, is not an automatic result of sin. So you don't put in one sin and get out one suffering and sickness. They're not necessarily linked. Now, the classic example in the Old Testament is the book of Job. Job was not suffering because of his sinfulness. And the classic example in the New Testament is John chapter 9, where uh, the disciples ask Jesus about a man that they encounter who was born blind. And they wonder, was it uh, this man or his parents 
who sinned. It had to be put in some sin, get out some suffering. And Jesus says, neither. He answered, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. There are times when our suffering and our sickness is not a result of sin. And I would suggest that Christians would do well not to try to pry too deeply into the providence of God and the mysteries of suffering. The reality is, I believe that if God wants to reveal to you, like he did to David, that your sickness is a result of sin, it will be a no-doubter. Uh, Maybe it'd be a natural consequence uh, that you would expect to happen. When you sin in a certain way, you would get this kind of sickness. Does that make sense? Nevertheless, when you are sinning, you always languish in soul. Okay, so please remember, sin does not automatically result in sickness and suffering. Sin can result in sickness and suffering. But whenever you sin, your soul will be languished. The Holy Spirit working inside of you will cause you to agonize over it and lead you, if the Spirit is in you, back to the Lord, which prompts me into question number four. When that happens, are you confiding in the Lord? Like, is that the response? Like the psalmist, like David, are you going to the Lord in prayer? Are you confiding in him? And, and finding your strength in him. In verse 9, David says his longing and his sighing over the weight of his sin is made in the presence of God. He turns to the Lord in verse 9 with a prayer from the depths of his soul. Friends, the, the sin you are committing, it would be foolish to think that you are doing that outside of the purview of God. God sees your sin. Well, so likewise, the Christian knows that God sees your sorrow and your languishing and your repentance. It is not hidden from him as well. And the believer knows that. So the Christian will then lay his soul bare before the Lord because he knows that hiding from God is an effort in futility. We are spurned and prompted to run to the mercy of the Lord and throw ourselves upon his mercy. Well, this is where the psalm now takes a bit of a turn after verse 9. Because David's sin and sickness becomes a compounding problem for him. A complexity arises as a result of the sickness that was a result of his sin. It leads to question 5 this morning. Are foes conspiring against you? Are foes conspiring against you? In verse 12, 16, and verses 19 and 20, David describes how his sin and illness have estranged him from his friends and have given his enemies the chance to plot his ruin. You know, this old phrase, they're going to kick the man while he's down. They see that he's off his game and they're going to capitalize on this opportunity to plan his demise. Now, the complex part of this psalm is that David senses that whatever his sin was, it had nothing to do with the way he had treated his enemies. In his heart, he had been innocent toward them. They hated him wrongfully, but they're taking advantage of his current position or disposition as a result of the Lord's discipline in his life. And David fears he is already ready to fall headlong. And now here comes their unjust conspiracy to tip him over the edge. 
Now, I hope that you do not find yourself in the threat of physical harm from earthly enemies. There are believers around the world who often do. So praise God for the relative ease with which we live. But ask God, is that the way it's always been or will it always be? So though you may not find yourself under the threat of physical harm from earthly enemies, the reality is we did discuss this concept recently when we studied Psalm 35. Those who hate us without cause are foaming at the mouth, so to speak, to see you stumble. Your testimony, your witness as a Christian makes your coworkers, your schoolmates, your family that aren't believers eager to call you a hypocrite when they see you falter. And so, dear friend, I, I would just suggest to you this psalm in all of its complexity is true to reality. It's true to reality. God's people do sin. But if they are truly God's people, their renewed natures are nevertheless set on a trajectory toward doing good. Do you remember if you were here in the summer teaching class at 845, Wayne had the chart with the trajectory of sanctification, God's work in the believer's life. And yes, the believer may stumble on that path, but on an arch, they are aiming towards good. Now, more on that in a moment, but the sentiment of that is related to question six. Are you counting on the Lord? Are you counting on the Lord? Instead of taking vengeance into his own hands or retaliating verbally against his enemies, David says in verse 13, he's become like a mute and a deaf man. Now, at first reading, I thought that this was just kind of continuing the list of physical ailments that David was going through as a result of sin. But on studying more closely, I'm inclined to believe this is a strategy of David, a strategy of waiting upon the Lord. He says in verse 15, but for you, O Lord, do I wait. It is you, O Lord, my God, who will answer. He said in verse 13 and 14, I don't open my mouth. I have no rebuke in my mouth. And he says, but for you, I was waiting for you. Instead, you are the one who will answer. In other words, there's no need for David to go and open his big mouth to get himself into more of a situation than he's already in. God will be the one who answers his foes. So do you count on God to come through for you when your life is turned upside down? Or do you scramble and... Uh, Strive and make effort to defend yourself? Do you have a relationship with the Lord where, like David, you can wait patiently for him because you know God will act? So when your life is a mess, the question is, are you counting on the Lord or are you relying on your own strength? And then next, the obvious question from verse 18 is, are you confessing your sin to the Lord. Are you confessing your sin to the Lord? David sets the example for us by confessing his iniquity and being truly sorry over his sin and not just the consequences of it. A wise person once said, it's a sign of spiritual maturity 
to see beyond the ill effects of sin and to be troubled by the sin itself. Let me say that again. A sign of spiritual maturity to see beyond the ill effects of sin and be troubled by the sin itself. Brothers and sisters, I wonder if some of you, even this morning, need to do business with the Lord before we partake of communion. Some of you may need to confess this morning, right now, before the time of the Lord's Supper. Are you continuing in a pattern of lying in your life? Have you been holding back when you should be generous? Are you sleeping with your girlfriend or boyfriend before marriage while claiming the name of Christ? Are you being selfish towards your spouse? Have you been hot-tempered with your children? I could go on and on and on, and may the Holy Spirit convict you as he convicts me this morning. So confess before the Lord. Confess it to him today. Paul warns in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. He also goes on to say, might I add in verse 29 and 30, for this reason some of you are sick or have passed away. It's not a one-to-one. We don't know God's providence in doing it. But I will be wary to come to the table with unconfessed sin. This is the warning of the apostle. Number eight. Are you chasing after good? Are you chasing after good? Look at the end of verse 20, where even though David has confessed his iniquity, he simultaneously claims a trajectory or a pattern of following after good. Do you see how, can we walk and chew gum at the same time on this? Like, he's confessing sin, but he's on a trajectory to follow after good. If you're a Christian, that is your general trajectory. That is your disposition in life. You are grieved by sin, and in your heart, your desire, your longing is to do good. Repay no one evil for evil, as 1 Thessalonians 5.15 says, but seek the good of others and the good of the obedience unto the Lord. The heart of a repentant sinner is toward, it's aimed at pleasing the Lord. Jesus said, if you love me, you will obey my commandments. You will keep my commands. The ninth question, as we look at the end of this psalm, is are you calling on the Lord to help you? As our call to worship said this morning, the Lord is near to all who call on him. Are you calling on the Lord to help you? Verse 21 and 22. In this couple of verses, for the fourth time now in this psalm, David addresses the Lord directly in prayer. David knows that his one and only hope of deliverance from his foes and the restoration of his body and his soul is for the Lord his God to save him. Notice in verses 21 and 22, the three names that God, that David uses for God in prayer. He says, first, do not forsake me, O Lord. If you're following in the English Standard Version or other modern translations, that word Lord is in all caps, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. That is the covenant name of God in the Old Testament and God's name revealed to us at the burning bush in Exodus 3, Yahweh. 
O Lord, my covenant God. And then he says, O my God, Elohim, the great God, the creator God, be not far from me. Make haste to help me, O Lord, capital L, small o, small r, small d, Lord, my salvation. That word is the word Adonai, the name for God, Adonai, meaning master, ruler, sovereign. And Michael Wilcock in his commentary points out, David combines this title of power with the title of salvation in verse 22. Adonai, my salvation. And he says this puts the gospel in a nutshell. You know God's real greatness and power and sovereignty only when you have seen him bring his power to bear in saving a world of sinners. God is powerful to save you this morning. He is not unable to save you. You say, but you don't know my sin, Pastor Jason. You don't know. When you're talking about confessing, like, it's just too deep. No, God is powerful. God is able to save you, to forgive you, and to restore you. And now with the 10th question I conclude this morning, are you considering how Jesus is united with you? If you are a believer, are you considering how Jesus is united with you? I put this question in at the end because it has been my effort consistently to try and do what the Psalms were intended to do. That is to point us to Jesus. The sign that my beautiful bride gave me that sits underneath the television, the back that I look at, says, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. And it is not a stretch to say that the Psalms point us to him. Jesus himself, after he rose from the grave, said the law and the prophets and the writings, meaning the Psalms, all speak of me. And so, you may have heard it said that the Psalms were Jesus's hymn book. Have you ever heard that? I've heard that before. And it's true. These would have been the songs that Jesus would have sung. So how could Jesus sing a song like Psalm 38? That becomes a bit of a sticky wicket, doesn't it? (laughs) Because Jesus was sinless, right? I mean, it says in 1 Peter 2.22, He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. So how could the words of Psalm 38 ever be the words of Jesus? Allow me to quote James Johnston at length as I close. He says here in Psalm 38, we see the depth of the union between Christ and his church. He is the head, we are the body. The head and the body cannot be separated because they are one being. This is what marriage pictures, right? Pictures the gospel of our union with Jesus. Christ has joined himself to us so completely that his righteousness becomes our righteousness and our sin becomes his. I love this line. Write this down. He did not wear our sin outside himself like a shirt on the cross. That's good stuff. He did not wear our sin outside himself like a shirt on the cross. He took our sins into himself and became sin for us. If he had not truly made our sins his own, he could not have paid for them by his own death. This is why the Bible says God made him 
to be sin who knew no sin. God made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Christ had, of course, no sins of his own to confess, but he is so joined to us that he can call our sins my sin in a sense. In Psalm 38, verse 3, the head speaking for the body. Dear friends, if conviction over sin horrifies you as it does me as believer, if you are horrified over your sin, discouraged that you have let your Lord and Savior down, Imagine what it must have been like for Christ to experience the guilt of countless sinners placed on his sinless person. We know from John, it's gospel, that it troubled his soul in the garden. He said in John 12, Now my soul is troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I came to this hour. Listen, in your mind's eye, can you see him in the garden of Gethsemane? Can you imagine how a psalm like this could have been on the lips of our Lord? Reread this psalm in the light of the garden of Gethsemane and our mystical union as his bride with him. And it comes under an entirely new light. O sacred head, now wounded, with grief and shame weighed down, now scornfully surrounded with thorns, thine only crown. O sacred head, what glory, what bliss till now was thine, yet though despised and gory, I joy to call thee mine. Church, behold the Christ who suffered the agony of sin for us. He entered into our pain and suffering so we might experience peace with God and eternal fellowship with the Father. So may the Spirit give you eyes to see our Lord and our union with him today in Psalm 38.